Just before we begin this episode, this is my final main episode reminder. Wherever you are in the world, please vote for Real Life Ghost Stories in the Irish Podcast Awards Listener Choice Award. Voting closes on the 11th of September. It would mean the world to me if you could vote for Real Life Ghost Stories. You can vote from anywhere in the world. It takes two seconds. It's so easy to do. All you have to do is go to www.theirishpodcastawards.ie forward slash vote and register your vote and you then need to confirm your vote via email and that is it. That is all it takes. That is all you have to do. I would appreciate it greatly if you could vote and if you listen to any other indie Irish podcast Podcasts, please vote for them too. Hello and welcome to episode 170 of Real Life Ghost Stories. To kick things off this week, we need to thank some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Caroline, Eleanor Brinklow, Megan Jones, Greggles, Natalie Evans, Shaley Coleman, Amy Woolley, Helen Lane, Kathleen Thatch, Aria Bautaput, Chilapia, Deb Michalecki, Shaheen Christie, Caroline, Shelley Kay, Lorenza Clark, Steph Mellowish, Mark Peterson, Cameron Burden and Dust Dastardly. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And I have a promo for you this week. Today's promo is for How Haunted. Listen to How Haunted podcast and allow author, ghost hunter and paranormal historian Rob Kirkup to be your guide. Each episode explores one of the most haunted places across the UK as well as the occasional trip to some of the scariest places on earth. You will look in depth at the often dark and troubled history of each location and the chilling ghost stories. There will also be special follow-up episodes where Rob conducts paranormal investigations at some of these terrifying places as well as big Halloween spooktaculars. Join Rob as each episode he asks the question, How Haunted? Have a listen to the promo for How Haunted now and if you like what you hear make sure to go and give it a listen. The first episode is out now, I believe it is on Greyfriars Kirkyard and if it sounds up your street do go and show your support. Check out How Haunted, a brand new paranormal podcast. I'm Rob Kirkup, author and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as each episode we dare to investigate the dark and troubled history of each location and, of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. Special episodes will be out regularly where you'll join me on a ghost hunt and hear the audio as it happened. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to How Haunted with a question mark at the end on your podcast app of choice. Join me every Friday where we will ask the question, How Haunted? And our film review this week. Our film review is Creep. Creep was released in 2014. It has 6.3 out of 10 on IMDb and 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. Aaron answers an online ad and drives to a stranger's house to film him for the day. The man wants to make a movie for his unborn child, but his requests become more bizarre as the day goes on. This film has been hotly requested for a very long time. And it surprised me, I I have to say. I was two margaritas deep when I decided to sit down and watch this and it very much took me by surprise. I was not expecting 
the movie that I watched in any way, shape or form. I think reading the synopsis, I thought it was going to be a guy going to another guy's house. The guy holds him hostage, tortures him, whatever. We have the psychological play out of one person trying to escape, the other person enacting all of their like deep, dark fantasies or whatever. And then it's like a bloody battle to see who survives. Not That was not this film. That was not this film. So if anything, that's one of my big likes about this about this film is that I, I hadn't a clue it was going to go where it went. So this movie is a found footage movie. Um, I don't even know if it can be classed as a horror movie. It's probably more of a thriller, like a psychological thriller. But it's a found footage movie and it is all based around the characters of these two men. So it's completely character driven. And those two characters were great. They were so good. So Joseph, who is the man who has put the ad out, is being filmed, is played by a man called Mark. Is it Mark Duplass is the actor's name? He is so good. The character Joseph is so unhinged that I got really, I got really giddy when I was watching it because it was making me, (laughs) it was making me really uncomfortable how unpredictable and sort of maniacal this character was. So Joseph would say the most bizarre things. He was kind of wide-eyed and really naively interested in Aaron. He maintained that he was suffering from cancer that was incurable. He was going to die and therefore he wanted to film something for his unborn child. So there's sort of this soft kind of almost childlike wonder to him which is you'd think it would be endearing but it becomes so uncanny valley that it's actually disturbing to watch and I just kept like breaking into fits of laughter watching all the bizarre things that he was doing this really eccentric behavior and I just thought to myself like imagine imagine the turn your life has taken if you answer an advertisement I think it's a thousand dollars he says he's going to pay you answer this ad you go to this stranger's house he's like can you film me and he (laughs) and you're sitting filming a grown man in the bath repeatedly referring to the bath as tubby Uh, we're going to have tubby now we're going to have tubby and he's pretending to be interacting with a baby in the bath and it honestly honestly that would be the point where I'd be like my life has taken a turn I don't know where that turn was but my life has taken a turn because I'm filming a grown man in the bath however would I do it for a thousand dollars yeah probably I probably would You know, I was watching it and I was thinking to myself, what kind of idiot would answer an advertisement like that? Go up into the forest to film this guy. Me, I'm the idiot. I would definitely do something like that. And then I'd be sitting filming a grown man in the bath wondering how my life choices had got me there. The wild unpredictability of (laughs) where this was going to go and what was going to happen was really, really the strong point of this movie. It also didn't rely on gore. There was actually no real violence in the film, no real gore. Um, I'm not a fan of gore and I was kind of reluctant to watch this film because of that, because like I said in the beginning, I thought it was going to be one of those trapped and tortured types of movies. It really wasn't. All of the tension and the scare came from Joseph's personality and what he does to Aaron. That's where that's where all of the scare came from. Except for there was one moment of violence towards the end of the movie that that was just this singular sound and it made me feel genuinely sick to my stomach. It disturbed me so much. And I actually thought afterwards, what a clever bit of filmmaking. Really, really clever. 
So in terms of dislikes, I actually wrote very little down. I just don't really know how I felt about this film. It definitely took me by surprise, as I've said a bazillion times. It was funny, like genuinely funny at parts. Like even though Joseph's character was disturbing, he started out kind of, like I said, naive, childlike. There was bits where I was laughing out loud at it. It's like a a very clever, strained take on a found footage horror film. Uh, There's great moments later on where Joseph becomes completely terrifying as a character. But I found the pacing really strange. And it's a short film, like it's only an hour and 10 minutes long. And I kind of felt like it finished and I thought to myself, oh, that, that felt like it was only getting started. I know there is a there is a creep too, which is apparently very good. I'd quite like to watch it actually. So the fact that I want to watch the next one and that I was surprised by the movie, does that mean that I liked it? I'm not entirely sure that it does. I think I kind of feel like there was an ambiguity that took something away from it. Like it was only an hour and 10 minutes long. Maybe a bit more time could have been spent like finding out about Joseph's backstory, finding out how he ended up where he is. Maybe they do that in the second one. I don't know. Finding out about Aaron's story. Why in the name of God is he agreeing to go and film a stranger for a thousand dollars in the middle of nowhere, essentially in this cabin? Why is he doing that? And I think maybe those questions that I was left with sort of took away from the story or from my enjoyment of it. I don't know. I'm going to give it three stars. So that's three stars for Creep. Don't come at me about giving it three stars because I just haven't quite figured out how I feel about it yet. Okay, that's that's the issue. Which brings us to our story this week. And this week, our story is not about men in wolf masks who take out an ad on Craigslist to ask somebody to film a day in their life. Or is it? But it is a story that I've been wanting to do for some time. And because last week we did a kind of a a fun story, I thought, how about this week we do the same thing? So let's just get straight into it. If you've been around for long enough, you will know that I love a Bigfoot story. There's something about Bigfoot that taps into a sense of childhood wonder and joy. And I think I feel the same way about Bigfoot as I do about the Loch Ness Monster. I'm not convinced of their existence, but if it were proven to be real, I'd be pretty excited. One thing that I've not properly covered on the podcast in a very long time, despite all of the deep diving into the wonderful world of Bigfoot lore, is a comprehensive guide to the actual working theories about what Bigfoot might actually be. So before we take a look at the strange story of Abe Canyon, let's take a brief look to refresh our memories at what Bigfoot might be so that we can be properly informed before trying to solve one of the most enduring Bigfoot stories. The first Bigfoot theory is the hybrid hominin theory. Hominins are part of a family of primates called hominids. I'm a hominid, you're a hominid, as are chimps, gorillas and orangutans, and as some believe, Bigfoot. Although not completely. There is a theory that Bigfoot is a hybrid, a crossbreed between known or unknown species of hominids that have created Sasquatch as we know today. This theory is probably the most widely accepted Bigfoot theory. The fossilised remains of various species of hominins have been found all over the world. Some species are millions of years old, whilst others still walked the earth as recently as 50,000 years ago. 
There was a lot of intergroup mating and Homo sapiens, which is our human genus, most definitely mated with Neanderthals. So at one point in our evolutionary history, there was a lot of sexy crossover. There are a lot of people who dedicate their lives to researching this theory. Similar to this is the Paranthropus theory, which is that Bigfoot is a descendant of Paranthropus, a genus of bipedal apes. There are also theories that Bigfoot is simply a surviving Neanderthal. Like I said, there is evidence that Neanderthal and humans coexisted, and maybe it's possible that some Neanderthals were just super hairy and the hairy gene was passed along and they somehow survived and live in the forest to this day. There is also the theory that Bigfoot is actually a big hairy alien, and there are allegedly multiple cases of both Bigfoot and lights in the sky being seen in the same vicinity at around the same time. And while I hate aliens, a Bigfoot Wookiee-style alien is somehow more palatable. There is the theory that Bigfoot is some sort of multi-dimensional creature who has the ability to become invisible, and let me tell you, this led to some truly bizarre accounts, which I will include at the end of this episode. There are theories that Bigfoot is a time traveller, although from where, I am unsure. I am also unsure why big hairy creatures with the ability to time travel would spend their time knocking around in the woods. And there is the theory that Bigfoot is a ghost. Do with that what you will. The thing is, is that most of the Bigfoot sightings are just that. Sightings. They are glimpses of a creature in the tree line, or a biped running across the road in the dead of night picked up in a car's headlights. Or it's a creature rustling in someone's yard at night time, retreating into the tree line when they are disturbed. Bigfoot is nothing if not elusive. There are very, very few sightings that report actual interaction between Bigfoot and humans, particularly not physical interaction. Until you dig deep and go right back to 1924 and to one of the most intriguing Bigfoot encounters of all time. Mount St. Helens is an active volcano that is located in Washington in the Pacific Northwest of the United States of America. It lies approximately 52 miles west of Portland in Oregon and gouged into the southeast of the mountain is a canyon, locally known as Ape Canyon. On the 12th of July 1924, a group of five hot and bothered gold prospectors stumbled into a tavern in Kelso babbling about mountain devils. What could be gleaned from the initially incoherent rambling was that the men had had an encounter with something in the mountains and they had barely made it out alive. Fred Beck, Marion Smith, his son Roy Smith, Gabe Lefevre and John Peterson were experienced prospectors and had been prospecting the land around Mount St. Helens and along the Lewis River for six years. These trips had always been without particularly remarkable incident. A few times, however, they had found curious tracks in the woods. Footprints, but unlike anything they had seen before. Definitely not bear, but definitely not human. For years, there had been whispers among the indigenous people that something other was living in the forests. But the prospectors weren't worried about old superstitions. The men were in a cabin near the River Lewis, using a sandbank to access the river to wash their belongings. The trip was going well. They were working hard, but were content in their work and content in each other's company. 
This continued for a few days until the men were suddenly and inexplicably overcome with the feeling that something or someone was watching their every move. It felt like the camp was under surveillance and the men began to feel uneasy. It is unknown as to whether this was a singular realisation that spread to each man in turn, or whether it was a collective realisation that was recognised in hindsight. Whatever the case, the men knew this land and had worked it for a long time, but this feeling was new and disturbing. But the men continued working. They rose with the sunrise and worked till sunset every day, until one particular day, which heralded the beginning of a series of events that would astound people to the present day. On this day, one of the men made his way to the sandbar in the morning to splash water in his face and wake himself up a bit before the day began. It was warm and bright already, despite the fact that the sun was only barely rising in the sky. As he washed his neck and forearms in the creek, he noticed something. A depression in the wet mud around him. It was deep and large and looked fresh. It was a footprint. The men had found footprints before, but in passing, and never this close to their camp, and definitely never this fresh. It was 19 inches long and around 4 inches deep in the sand. Whatever had left the tracks was big. The prospector stood looking at the print for only a minute or two before backing slowly into the forest, eyes scanning the tree line for potential threats. Once back in the dense forest, he ran back to the group to tell them what he had seen. Whatever it was, it was a threat. Something big, with an impossibly large stride, had been lurking in the exact spot where the men were collecting water and washing. Not only this, but it was like it just appeared there. There were no footprints on the other side of the sandbank or into the woods. If they weren't on edge already, now they truly were. Then the noises started. As night fell, the men began to hear strange sounds coming from the forest. A loud, booming, thumping noise reverberated around the trees. The men had never heard anything like it. It sounded like a man thumping his chest with his fist. And then came the whistling. A sort of a shrill, piercing sound. It would be heard coming from a ridge and another whistle from another ridge would answer. Whatever was making the sound, there was more than one and they were very clearly communicating. The men decided that from now on they would do what they needed to do in pairs. If it was a particularly big bear, for example, they needed to be as prepared as they could be. And if it was something else, well, they just couldn't take that risk. Fred Beck and one of his colleagues were making their way towards a spring to collect water when they finally saw it. In a later pamphlet, Fred recounted what happened. We walked to the spring, and then Hank yelled and raised his rifle. And at that instant, I saw it. It was a hairy creature, and he was about a hundred yards away, on the other side of a little canyon standing by a pine tree. It dodged behind the tree and poked its head out from the side of the tree. And at the same time, Hank shot. 
I could see the bark fly out from the tree from each of his three shots. Someone may say that that was quite a distance to see the bark fly, but I saw it. The creature I judged to have been about seven feet tall with blackish brown hair. It disappeared from our view for a short time, but then we saw it running fast and upright about 200 yards down the little canyon. I shot three times before it disappeared from view. This was enough to convince the men that it was time to leave. After the tale was recounted, the expedition collectively decided that enough was enough. Whatever this creature was, they weren't willing to risk their lives and they would pack up and leave first thing in the morning. It was too risky to try and make the journey out of the gorge at night. So they would pack up, settle down and get some rest before their journey. It was not long into the night and the men had fallen into fitful sleep when a thump shook their cabin. Dust fell from the ceiling as another thump rattled the wooden structure. The men immediately knew what was happening. The creatures were outside. The men silently rose from their positions and wrapped their hands around their rifles, ready to defend themselves in whatever way necessary. The cabin was windowless, so the men could only imagine the creatures prowling in the darkness just beyond the woods. One of the men found a small hole in the wood through which he was able to peer outside and he was able to make out the lumbering shapes of three creatures. But when the sounds began, they realised that there were far more than three of them. The heavy, thudding footsteps came from all around the cabin and rocks were smashed against the walls and roof of the building. Rocks tumbled down the chimney and into the fireplace. The clatter of rocks against the walls was coupled with the booms and thuds of the creatures pummeling on the walls with their fists. Fred Beck spoke of the attack in the same pamphlet. The only time we shot our guns that night was when the creatures were attacking our cabin. When they would quiet down for a few minutes, we would quit shooting. I told the rest of the party that maybe if they saw we were only shooting when they attacked, they might realise that we were only defending ourselves. We could have had clear shots at them through the opening in the wood. We did shoot, however, when they climbed up on our roof. We shot round after round through the roof. We had to brace the hew-logged door with a long pole taken from the bunk bed. The creatures were pushing up against it and the whole door vibrated from the impact. We responded by firing many more rounds through the door. They pushed against the walls of the cabin as if they were trying to push the cabin over. But this was pretty much an impossibility. As previously stated, the cabin was a sturdy made building. Hank and I did most of the shooting. The rest of the party crowded to a far end of the cabin, guns in their hands. One had a pistol, which is still in my family's possession. The others clutched their rifles. They seemed stunned and incredulous. The attack continued for the remainder of the night, with only short intervals in between. And most profound and frightening experience occurred when one of the creatures being close to the cabin reached an arm through the whole space and seized one of our axes by the handle a much written about incident and a true one before the thing could pull the axe out i swiftly turned the head of the axe upright so that it caught on the logs and at the same time hank shot barely missing my hand the creature let go and I pulled the handle back in and put the axe in a safe place. They are about seven feet tall, but there are larger ones. 
They had large ears and a head that was in proportion with their large muscular body. Their shoulders were tremendous, but they had slim hips. They were hairy but not shaggy. In general, they possess a very stout physical frame, but looked more like giant humans than an ape. As dawn slowly broke over the mountain, the assault began to slow and eventually stopped, and silence descended over the forest. The men waited before gingerly exiting the cabin. They stood outside the cabin and surveyed the scene and then they saw it. One of the creatures, standing atop a ridge, watching them in the glow of the morning. Fred Beck raised his rifle and shot the creature multiple times, sending its body plummeting 400 feet onto the rocks below. The men fled to Kelso. Among the listeners to the prospector's extraordinary tale were two rangers, who agreed to accompany Fred Beck back up the mountain to find evidence of the siege. The creatures were nowhere to be seen, but the carnage in the cabin was still very much evident. There was no body of the creature in the ravine, but there were footprints which were dutifully photographed. The story spread and soon there were so many people in the woods wildly shooting their guns that law enforcement and rangers were dispatched to clear the area for fear of someone getting hurt. As time went on, it was clear that Fred Beck's beliefs about what these creatures were did not align with what the other members of the party believed. Fred Beck believed that these creatures were interdimensional beings that were capable of dipping in and out of our reality while the others of the group believed that they were savage beasts who lived in caves in the surrounding area. In the 1950s, a group of men said that they had pulled a prank on the prospectors, but the prospectors insisted that what they had seen with their own eyes was definitely not human. In 1963, a group of mountaineers were descending Mount St. Helens. The group took a rest, and as they gathered their gear to continue their journey, one of the group, a man named Jim Carter, stayed behind in order to capture a picture of the group from behind as they made their way down the mountain. And they never saw him again. When the group realised Jim hadn't followed behind them, they returned to the place where he had stopped. They found an empty camera box, and signs in the snow that there had been a struggle. They could see Jim's ski tracks in the snow that led another way entirely than the way that they were going. He was travelling at speed and was turning and jumping in a way that was dangerous. It looked like something had attacked Jim, and Jim had fled for his life. The tracks stopped at the edge of a steep ravine. The group went to Kelso to seek help and no remains were ever found. The area was home to Native American tribes who spoke of a strange, secretive and undocumented tribe known to them as the Seatic. The Seatic were said to be different than any of the Native American tribes. They looked different. They looked nothing like them. They had supernatural powers and they were dangerous. They had warriors of eight feet tall and their bodies were covered in hair. They communicated in whistles and whoops and could mimic animals and throw their voices to confuse people who entered their territory. They were said to be particularly adept at mimicking the sounds of the owl. 
the indigenous people avoided any contact with the sciatic at all costs. So let's pause there for a second and have a chat about what we've heard so far. When I was looking up about all the different theories about Bigfoot, I came across a book by somebody called, I think it's Mitchell, Mitchell Townsend, I think, who wrote a really detailed book in which he claims to have discovered that Bigfoot is a real hominin hybrid. He's proven it, he's outlined the scientific data, and I don't like taking the piss out of people who go to the lengths to write a book, but he spells existence wrong in the title. The title of the book is about proving the existence of Bigfoot and he spells existence wrong in the title. So listen, you know, come on, if you're going to be presenting Bigfoot evidence, Bigfoot data, we need that to be watertight, you know. We need the naysayers to know that when they open that book, their minds are going to be blown. We don't need to look at that front cover and go, but babe, you've spelt existence wrong in the title. Here was me thinking, I came across this book and I thought, this is it. This is obviously going to be true. Like, this is going to be real. There is real science behind this. And then I thought, oh, no, well, I, can't, I can't use that as evidence because he spelled existence wrong in the title. And to be honest, in all of my research, it just seems like early humans, you know, hominins, you've got Neanderthals, all the different kind of genuses that we know of. They all seem to be having just loads of sex with each other. Just loads of sex with each other everywhere. There's like you know, fossilised remains that have been found that have been proven to have Neanderthal DNA. Like, mother was a Neanderthal, father was an was a human. So, you know, we, there was a lot of, there was a lot of hanky-panky going on. Do I think that, do I believe this theory that Bigfoot is a Neanderthal? No, probably not. I kept reading things about how, like, Bigfoot actually resembled, more closely resembled Neanderthals than what we think of when we think of Neanderthals and then I looked it up and like you know all of the scientific data seems to indicate the fact that yeah they were slightly hairier than modern humans but they weren't they don't resemble Bigfoot okay or what we know of as Bigfoot so unless there are there was a gene of particularly hairiness that was passed down between Neanderthals then I don't think that theory quite stands up but it did genuinely get me thinking about whether or not the ancient human experience of living alongside other hominins meant that we have a genetic memory which has become stories of hairy men living in the woods. So if you like cast your mind all the way back to the Yowie stories and the Bunyip stories that we did, I mean, years ago, there were Aboriginal stories about a great flood that was thought to be like a story a legend that had been, you know, passed down. It was some sort of moral tale. But then, scientifically and historically, the story turned out to be accurate. So what was thought to be just a legend among the Aboriginal communities was actually real. It did happen. So maybe Bigfoot is this genetic memory. The early humans lived alongside Neanderthals. They lived alongside other species of hominins that don't exist anymore and maybe these species when they grouped together so you had like a group of Neanderthals maybe living in the woods or a group of other hominins that were living in the woods that humans early humans were like oh you know there's there's savages living in the woods there's scary people living in the woods there's big hairy people living in the woods and maybe it is just that a genetic memory that we have this predisposition to 
believe that there are Bigfoot-like creatures living in the woods. So when we see something that maybe resembles that, we end up with this genetic almost confirmation bias. Or maybe I'm wrong and it's just like the X-Files episode, you know? So in regards to the Battle of Ape Canyon, Ape Canyon is literally called Ape Canyon because of the Battle of Ape Canyon. There are loads of events spoken about that just didn't happen. So when I was researching for this, I saw stories about like boulders being smashed through the ceiling by the creatures, about them running into the creatures on like a pathway and the creatures trying to attack them, about creatures like spilling out from caves. So about Fred Beck being knocked out by a boulder that was like smashed on his head, all of this stuff. And actually... A lot of that just isn't true. So Fred Beck in an interview said, So much has been written in Washington and Oregon papers throughout the years. Most accounts tell of giant boulders being hurled against the cabin and some say that they even fell through the roof. But this was not quite the case. There were very few large rocks around in that area. It is true that many smaller ones were hurled at the cabin, but they did not break through the roof, but hit with a bang and rolled off. Some did fall through the chimney of the fireplace. Some accounts state that I was hit in the head by a rock and knocked unconscious. This is not true. So unfortunately, over the years, there have been a lot of elements of the story of the Battle of Ape Canyon that have been exaggerated. And as a result, it can be kind of tricky to find what the real story is. Because I found a lot of sources that were quoting things as fact in the story of the Battle of Ape Canyon that were said to be completely untrue by Fred Beck himself. And Fred Beck is a really interesting character. I mean, he believed that he was psychic and could see these interdimensional beings. He believed that the Bigfoot or whatever it was that they saw were sort of traveling through space and time. Hence why the footprint like appeared in the middle of the sandbank and didn't seem to have any tracks afterwards so it's not like the creature walked away it looked like it appeared and then disappeared he said that because they heard all those sounds the like whistling the whooping the banging and the knocks that those sounds were almost sort of indicating that the creatures were coming into the dimension I don't know it's kind of hard to explain and Fred Beck seems to be like the spokesperson of the group there's very little information about the rest of the group very little information about their particular experiences of what happened so is this really a story about Fred Beck himself the other kind of protagonist in this story is a man under the pseudonym Hank I don't know which of the other men this was but Fred and Hank seem to be the two that did the shooting they seem to be the two that kind of were the heroes of the hour and they also were the two that saw the creature or at least claim to have seen the creature and I think it's really striking that in in the description of the siege Fred describes him and Hank were like shooting you know trying to keep trying to keep the creatures back but the other men were cowered in the corner now I know that everybody's fight flight and freeze response is totally different and it depends on the situation um, but it does make me wonder if maybe something happened between Fred and Hank like a like a shared a shared hallucination, a shared psychotic experience. They really believed something was happening and maybe the other men didn't. Maybe they weren't shooting because there was nothing to shoot at. Maybe these sounds were normal woodland sounds that were being misinterpreted and the other men of the party were thinking, oh God, what is happening? Why are these men shooting into the night and screaming and shouting about creatures in the forest? 
But that, of course, assumes that Fred Beck's version of events is the real version of events. And then, of course, there is that group of men who claim to have orchestrated the Battle of Ape Canyon as a prank on the prospectors. I think they said, so they went to a local, they went to a newspaper, a Washington newspaper, and they said, look, we were located nearby and we decided to take the piss out of the prospectors who were drinking every night and we orchestrated the whole thing as a prank. I don't know if I believe this for a couple of reasons. Number one is that uh, like if it was a prank haha like it's it's you know it's funny but it's also very fucking dangerous if you've got drunken prospectors and you're trying to make them believe there's these big creatures in the forest who are trying to hurt them why would you do that they are going to shoot guns at you they are going to shoot guns at you so I don't know if I believe that it was a prank because I believe it's just too dangerous if you have a costume there is a possibility that you are going to get shot if you are making noises and sounds in the tree line to try and freak them out if you're throwing stuff at their cabin you are close enough that these men might shoot you i can't imagine any scenario where after the first shots were fired you'd be like oh god this is re- this is really funny this is really funny let's keep going no let's keep going no, honestly like this is really funny it's going to be really funny i promise let's keep going oh you just got shot in the arm yeah but it's still funny let's keep going i can't imagine any scenario where it would play out like that And to keep it a secret for 30 years, so they came out, I think it was in the 1950s, and said, haha, it was actually us all along. It's really hard to keep a secret for that length of time, and especially with so many journalists involved over the years, would it really have been kept a secret until then? Oh, by the way, fun fact about secrets. I was trying to figure out scientifically how long people can keep a secret for. So fun fact for you, apparently most people keep around 13 secrets, five of which they've never told another soul. So my thoughts on this is that maybe it was some sort of hysteria. Like the men were feeling a bit edgy anyway. They were seeing footprints that they thought were weird. They got pissed in their cabin, misinterpreted some sounds in the night and then started wildly shooting. But I also, I don't know if I really believe that either. And the thing that really gets me about this story is the Native American beliefs of this group of creatures who live in the forest who are not to be messed with and there are variations of this and like I always say with things that are specific to a culture or a people you can never kind of quite get the nuance of it and you can never quite cover it all in one in one episode or in one little brief bit but there's something about those stories that really freaked me out and I really would recommend looking them up if you don't know the lore so they go they're called lots of different things and there's also different like types of creatures that live in the forest so if you want to look it up it's s-e-e-a-h-t-i-c i think but there's something about that indigenous lore that makes me think is there more to the battle of ape canyon than just a load of prospectors mistaken identity getting a bit pissed and shooting wildly into the forest according to the lore the sciatic will attack you if you encroach on their territory. So at the beginning of this episode, I alluded to some of the more outlandish claims about Bigfoot and I promised I would return to them later in the episode. Well, here is one of the best stories that I came across. Crypto Mundo reader Silver Eagle has alluded to Lawrence Livermore National Labs having had several Bigfoot in captivity in the 60s. 
Several other Crypto Mundo readers have asked for more information regarding this. He posted the following as a comment, and I decided to post it as a separate blog. It was fairly common knowledge in the East Bay area during the late 60s and early 70s that Lawrence Livermore National Labs had several Bigfoot in captivity in the 60s. UC Berkeley staff also participated in the study. The first Bigfoot caught them by surprise when it escaped by walking out the door when the janitor came in to clean out what everyone thought was an empty holding cell. It remained at large inside the building for a couple of weeks before it found its way out. There was some panic, but I believe that only a few people stayed at home since it was technically fourth dimensional. The fourth dimension description was not decided until a later time and at UC Berkeley, I believe. Stephen Hawking participated to some degree in later studies in 1974 and 1975. The scientists did continue to study the Bigfoot while it was at large. They did so by standing in front of its travel path and letting it walk right through them. They were able to determine that it held no ill will towards its captors and that it was only trying to get out of the building. They were more prepared for the second one that they held captive. During that study, they had 24-hour multiple observer surveillance and multiple cameras running. At no time was no camera not running. They both witnessed and photographed the Bigfoot's many cycles of transition from our three dimensions to several fourth dimension phases. This one escaped in the exact same way as the first because apparently it did not return from a fourth dimension phase. So they believe that it has escaped on its own. It too roamed the lab for a couple of weeks. It made its way into a break room and both ate food there and made a mess during the night that was left to be discovered the next day. They relied on the secretaries to detect where the fourth dimensional Bigfoot was since they were more sensitive than the men who could better sense the electromagnetic cloud that was being associated with its presence. Apparently it liked to sneak up on the secretaries from behind when they came in for coffee. So there were a few dropped coffee pots and burnt toes. They drove this one out of the building by opening up a pathway by propping doors open and presumably banging pots and pans. Apparently one scientist was retired early because it was believed that the Bigfoot hypnotised him to go insane. He apparently did not respect the Bigfoot for being people and firmly thought it to be an animal. That was the only injury that I can recall. The actual report was retrieved by the DoD from the lab's library in about 1979 and no copies remain there. Since the lab has retirement plans, no personnel that were on duty there are still there today. This is why the feds are still quite bent on stifling all Bigfoot research of any kind and by any method. The conclusion of the DoD study was that the Bigfoot cannot be contained, controlled or communicated with and is thought to be alien in origin. They were wrong on the communication aspect because most anybody can communicate with the Bigfoot given the proper instruction. Far more money is spent by the federal government to stifle Bigfoot research than is spent by all Bigfoot researchers put together, in my opinion. How? Illegal email and phone taps, helicopter and motor vehicle time, electronics to track cell phones of researchers who failed to remove the battery from their phones even though turned off, automated telephone harassment equipment, man hours to both tail and harass researchers, breaking and entering to steal records and photographs of those who write books, theft of mail through the UPS system, picking up Bigfoot bodies and threatening all who witnessed it. Other than that, the feds couldn't give a rat's ass about whether Bigfoot is proven or not. February the 17th, 2007. I asked for a source for the Lawrence Livermore National Labs Bigfoot story. 
He responded thusly and offered the following advice. I listed a source as Stephen Hawking. I have listed him in the past. All choose to fail to interview him. People are free to poke around Berkeley with the retired professors. Lawrence Berkeley has a science exhibit building that is open to the public. They were fully aware of both the Bigfoot in captivity and the invisibility in 1975. It was common knowledge back then. Two successful Southern Oregon Bigfoot researchers by the name of Ray Rossa and Shelley Binkley had one of the Bigfoot that they were working with transition into an orb in front of their eyes. That will be real easy for you to verify. The orb trick was also first revealed in the Lawrence Livermore Lab Bigfoot study. I just didn't post it because I didn't think that your viewers could handle it. Invisibility of Bigfoot has been known about since at least the 60s. People who know about do not become Bigfoot researchers because they are pretty sure it is a waste of time trying to study something that is invisible most of the time. People who do not know about it may become Bigfoot researchers because they do not know what they are up against. So the law of natural selection weeds out those who know about Bigfoot invisibility in the ranks of researchers. Sally Shepard Walford's book The Valley of the Skookum clearly describes Bigfoot's invisibility. Mary Green's book describes the evidence but fails to reach any conclusions. A fellow Oregon researcher of mine has seen hundreds of Bigfoot. She will not post to the internet for obvious reasons. There is no question in her mind that they are interdimensional and will drift in and out of our dimension right before her eyes. There is just one giant game going on to try and keep from upsetting too many people about invisibility. My take on invisibility? Invisibility is an inconvenience to proving Bigfoot. The Bigfoot do not use it as a weapon to hurt people who respect them as people. Even when they are invisible, they are concerned that we can see them. They use it as a defensive tool to keep from getting hurt or killed by lunatics with guns. And there are a lot more Bigfoot than anyone can imagine. They live inside the city limits of Portland, Oregon and in most woods that are larger than five acres around here. They just do not often come into our dimension to get shot. And now look, I know, it's funny, it's ridiculous, it somehow manages to be sexist in a piece about whether or not Bigfoot is an interdimensional being. However, <laughs> I came across that first when I was um, researching all the different theories about Bigfoot. Came across that first, kept it because I thought it was hilarious. And then Fred Beck in, in the story of the Battle of Ape Canyon comes out and he's like, yeah, I think Bigfoot's an interdimensional being. And somebody... I don't know who you are. If you're a Hollywood exec that's listening to this, tell you what, you need to make a sitcom about this lab where everyone's everyone's studying an invisible Bigfoot. And you're telling me Bigfoot's an interdimensional being and he can't escape from a lab without people leaving the doors open and banging pots and pans to help him find the way out? The, I mean, the absurdity of both the alleged scientific rigour of researching this creature that is highly evolved but also can't find its way out a door so their scientist lines up banging pots and pans to help him find the way out? You're telling me that nobody, nobody has sat down and gone, we need this as a TV series, this lab, investigating Bigfoot, Bigfoot's invisible most of the time, wreaking havoc, wrecking the place. Imagine all the bits you could have, all the gags, you could have the clumsy scientist who knocks everything down and is like, whoa, looks like Bigfoot's been in the kitchen again. Amazing, honestly. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I promise we'll be back to more serious ghost stories next week. If you need to find out anything more about Real Life Ghost Stories podcast, you can do so by checking out reallifeghoststoriespodcast.com. If you have a spooky story that you would like to share, you can share it to reallifeghoststoriespodcast at gmail.com. 
If you are desperate for more content, you can sign up to patreon.com forward slash real life ghost stories where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content and all of the main and mini episodes completely ad free. Please don't forget if you can at all to vote for real life ghost stories in the Irish podcast awards listeners choice award. The link is in the description. And on that note, I shall see you next week. Thank you.